This is Shifting and Shaping. In a previous episode, we heard from Amadou Fofana about his life with doc status at Cornell University. This episode will continue the conversation about asylum and DACA status in the United States, focusing on two Jamaican individuals who came to the U.S., one of which is a DACA student at Columbia University, whose parents went into sanctuary in a nearby church while he was pursuing higher education, and another individual who will remain anonymous for privacy concerns and his journey to obtaining asylum status in the United States. First, we hear from Raj Borsellino, a program director at the Robin Hood Foundation, the largest poverty-fighting nonprofit in New York City, and pro bono immigration lawyer on asylum. DACA itself is not a status. DACA stands for um, Deferred Action for, for Childhood Arrivals, which means that if you um, are a DACA recipient right now, it is the... the there's not necessarily a path towards permanent residency or to citizenship. Um, it's basically, it basically means that um, the action on you is deferred. So you, you, if, if you're in full DACA status, you cannot be deported. The DACA program has sparked a contentious debate in American politics over the last couple of years and has enrolled about 700,000 Americans. Last June of 2020, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court upheld the DACA program. Asylum is a very different process, and asylum actually is a path towards a green card. Um, and so if somebody, apply, if somebody qualifies for asylum, even if they're a DACA recipient, um, it's in their best interest to apply for asylum. Um, because uh, if you receive asylum, one year after you receive asylum, you're eligible to apply for, uh, for a green card. Uh, or lawful permanent residency. Um, and five years after you have your green card, um, if you're in, in good status, um, haven't broken the law, have, have essentially done everything that's been asked of you, then you're eligible to apply for citizenship. Raj wanted to become an immigration lawyer after seeing his own mother go through the naturalization process when he was in high school. When your actual asylum trial comes up, it is not an interview. It is actually an adversarial process in which you have to prove to a judge uh, that, uh, that you deserve asylum in the United States. You have somebody sitting across from you who represents the government whose job is to prove that you do not deserve asylum in the United States. And so there's, um, there's cross-examination, there's, there's questioning of your documents. These, these claims don't succeed. In fact, in, in immigration court across the country, the vast majority of asylum uh, claims are denied. The grant rate of approval varies, city to city, state to state, judge to judge. And often it's up to luck to place an asylum seeker in the hands of a welcoming city or a welcoming judge. Asylum case success rates jumped from 29 to 37% during the time in which Biden took office, according to a new report by TRAC. And one of the really heartbreaking things about our immigration system is that lawyers are not guaranteed to anyone, even to children. Um, and so... In contrast to the criminal system, where you do have the right to a court-appointed attorney, uh, in the immigration system, you do not. And so if, uh, if these lawyers aren't there, either in their pro bono capacity or working with um, an organization like Kids in Need of Defense or, or Make the Road or, or any number of other organizations, oftentimes they don't have lawyers. And so they're left trying to navigate the immigration system entirely on their own. And sometimes these children are as young as two, three years old. Yeah, I remember when we went to immigration court, there were just 
dozens of kids just unaccompanied sitting in the waiting room. Some of them didn't even have seats. They were sitting on other people's laps. We have some stats from Syracuse University that indicate that in the absence of a lawyer, so if these children did not have lawyers, their likelihood of prevailing um, on, their, on their asylum cases or on their immigration cases is probably about uh, 15 to 20%. But with a lawyer, um, specifically with uh, these six organizations that we work closely with, their success rate is above 90%, which is pretty dramatic. To establish eligibility for asylum or refugee status under U.S. law, you must prove you are either a victim of past persecution or have well-founded fear of persecution. Those attorneys don't, are, unfortunately, are so overworked and so overburdened that they don't get the time to actually um, speak with their clients for hours on end to know their full story. Sometimes they meet those clients uh, on the day of the, the hearing. Uh, and so when we say that somebody has an attorney, it can mean any number of things. Um, it could mean that they have an attorney who has been working with them for years and really helping them beef up their, their applications. Um, but sometimes when somebody has an attorney, um, that attorney has only met them that morning. And so the idea of trying to learn somebody's entire story, um, turn that into a compelling immigration case um, and presenting that to a judge with the stakes being as high as they are is a real challenge. Um, and, and by that, I, I don't mean to discredit the attorneys at all. These are, these are folks who are often extremely overstretched, who are doing absolutely everything they can to represent their clients, but the need right now is just so dramatic. Um, and, and as a result, we see attorneys who um, are doing everything they can, but are, are working with a relatively limited set of information about their clients. Immigration courts are roughly 1.5 million cases behind schedule, which means that thousands of people have been waiting for years for their asylum requests to be decided by a judge. A partial shutdown of immigration courts beginning in March 2020 as COVID-19 spread across the U.S. exacerbated this backlog. Prior to the pandemic, it was not uncommon for people to wait up to four years for a case to be heard. Oftentimes, if you're applying for asylum in immigration courts, um, you are hoping to get, uh, to get a decision on your status relatively soon. Um, just to use an example, I have a client who I work with who I applied. Uh, he applied for asylum in 2014. Um, it's now 2020 he still has not had his asylum hearing. As a person ages, they can disqualify and age out of certain statuses and qualifications related to their case. His work authorization expired. He couldn't work and he lost the job that he had been working at, even though he had done everything that he was supposed to do. You're sort of in limbo. Um, you can apply to get work authorization, but that's a long process. You have to pay out of pocket in order to do that. You certainly can't be put on the path towards applying for a green card or for citizenship until you have asylum. So that clock hasn't started yet. And emotionally, there's, there's a lot of challenges there. If you are in the US for seven, eight, nine, 10 years, and then you finally get before an immigration judge and your asylum case is denied, you have to go back to your home country. It, it, it would be almost navigating an entirely new world after having spent the last decade in the US um, trying to get your life settled. Raj spoke about his client that he represented who was applying for asylum from Jamaica. The story of Raj's client who fled Jamaica after testing positive for HIV 
in a country with anti-buggery and anti-gay laws further highlights the complexity of winning an asylum case in immigration court. Unfortunately, um, there's a lot of hostility towards, uh, towards the LGBT community in Jamaica. Um, some of it is codified in law. They're actually um, what are called anti-buggery laws, which means that it's, it's against the law to be gay in Jamaica. I worked with one particular client who, and unfortunately was diagnosed with HIV. And um, he could not get treatment for his HIV in the city that he lived in without having himself outed. Uh, it's a small community. If you go to get treatment for HIV, people assume either correctly or not um, that you are gay. And so there was no way he could be closeted and get treatment for his HIV. If he stayed in Jamaica, he would either not get treatment for HIV, in which case his life would be on the line, or he would get treatment for his HIV and um, would essentially be outed in the community, in which case his life would also be on the line because there are many, many documented cases of, um, of violence against the LGBT community in Jamaica, um, including death. I started representing him. Uh, I, I met him in 2014. We were able to get him asylum. A year later, we applied for a uh, green card. He was able to get that. So now he's a lawful permanent resident of the United States. Being persecuted on the basis of his sexuality, what was the proof that he needed to bring to the court that day? In his situation, he had not personally experienced violence. He had been he had been taunted a lot throughout his life, but uh, thankfully he himself had not been attacked because he was gay. Um, and part of that was because he had essentially remained closeted his entire life. Um, so instead, what he had to prove was that he had a well-founded fear of persecution. Arguments in a case have to be meticulous and personal, and oftentimes clients feel they can't talk about their experience because they haven't been able to in the past or it's severely traumatizing. In which case, he essentially had to prove to the asylum officer two things. One, that he was in fact gay, um, because oftentimes, unfortunately, that is challenged. This was a young individual. He was in his early 20s. Um, he had faced some really um, difficult and traumatizing circumstances um, during his upbringing, um, during his, his early adulthood. Um, and, and then to, to have to present that story before an immigration officer with the stakes being as high as they are is extremely challenging. Asylees often have to prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution with evidence that it was often hid by the asylee for most of his or her life. There were, there were affidavits um, by him, by, by uh, some of the very uh, people he was very close with, um, who he had confided in um, that he was gay. Uh, but then the second piece was really proving that um, there is documented violence um, against the LGBTQ community in Jamaica. And so for that, we prepared a really lengthy set of, um, of documents, essentially news articles, um, reports from the State Department, reports from Human Right, Rights Watch, um, documenting uh, violence and um, oppression against the LGBTQ community. And we submitted those to the immigration or to the asylum officer. Um, we also had an, a country conditions expert, somebody whose research focuses specifically on the LGBTQ community in Jamaica and was able to provide a written statement saying, this is my area of expertise and I can, I can verify that somebody who's gay in Jamaica faces a very serious set of challenges that could risk, that, that could put their lives at risk. I wanted to speak with somebody next who is personally impacted by the immigration system's bureaucracy. 
I spoke with Clive Thompson Jr., whose parents spent 843 days hiding out in a Philadelphia church to avoid deportation. My name is Clive Thompson. I was born in Jamaica. Clive is a member of an even smaller subset of the DACA population in the Ivy League. And I am currently a DACA recipient, and I am also an undergraduate student at Columbia University pursuing film studies. Clive was seven when he fled Jamaica with his family in 2004 after gang members burnt down his family farm. Yeah, I want to note that we came here on visas. Uh, we live with people uh, that my parents knew in the United States until my parents uh, worked jobs and saved up to purchase a home. During that time, we moved maybe two or three times. Clive's parents worked, paid taxes, bought a home, and raised a family. Um, I can only speak on my family's experiences from my point of view, but I know that we all work very hard, uh, especially my parents who were essentially starting their lives over. They settled in New Jersey as the U.S. government denied the family asylum. As a child, I definitely felt the difference of being an immigrant because I wasn't a Black American, nor was I white. And I say that because in middle school, I went to a predominantly white school where I faced racism, prejudice, and you know other forms of bullying and uh, oppression. But then I transitioned to a predominantly Black and Hispanic school where I had to deal with not being Black enough for the Black people, but um, because of the way I spoke and acted, uh, which was a result of living in a white neighborhood. And I was too, I was too Black in, in appearance for the Hispanic students. Um, in fact, I remember some of the Hispanic students saying uh, they were more Black than me because of the way they, because of the way they spoke and acted um, as a result of them being from a predominantly Black community. Clive was 14 when President Barack Obama created DACA in 2012, and he enrolled. Clive's family applied for DACA and asylum. He applied for both. The U.S. government denied Clive's parents asylum, but he was granted DACA status. He's part of a mixed-status family where he has certain protections under U.S. law, and his family does not because they don't operate under a protected status. In fact, it it was when I was applying to college that DACA and being being an immigrant in general became totally noticeable to me because for the first time, my status was holding me back from my dreams. Mm -hmm. um, I was applying to financial aid and scholarships and the reality hit me really hard. I, I mean, my parents mentioned it to me, but being so inexperienced, uh, I did not really take in what they were saying to me. Um, but I could not get financial aid and I could not apply for many scholarships. And so the universities that I was accepted to became far out of my reach. The thing is, I, I worked really hard in high school and I graduated in like the top 10 in my class and I had universities and like my life all planned out in my head. But then of course, the reality of being immigrant shattered all, shattered all of that and ultimately humbled me. Um, nonetheless, uh, that allowed me to work and pay my way through community college and I continued to focus on my dreams. We hear from Raj, who talks about the Iowa Dream Act in his home state and how, on a state-to-state -state basis, financial aid for DACA students varies. Sometimes children um, who are undocumented are allowed to apply for in-state tuition in, their, in the states that they grew up in, but oftentimes they're not. So um, uh, I grew up in the state of Iowa. We don't have um, an Iowa Dream Act. We don't have in-state tuition for undocumented students, which means that you could be brought to the U.S., as a child, as a toddler, as a two-year-old, spend your entire life 
in the state um, of Iowa, going through high school, um, paying taxes, working a job, and then when it comes time to apply to college, if you want to go to the University of Iowa, or if you want to go to Iowa State University, you do not qualify for in-state tuition because you were brought to the U.S. when you were a toddler. Naturally, when students can't afford to go to college, they don't go to college, um, or they go into very serious debt in order to do so, and that takes them years and years to get through it. Um, in some states, it's, it's much more of a challenge for undocumented students to even go through the K-12 through school system. I spoke to Congressman Steve Israel, who served as a representative from New York from 2001 to 2017, and is currently spearheading the Campaign for Future Democracy about the ways that people process information on hot topics like immigration to cut out the diatribe that often polarizes many of these issues across our nation. An authoritarian message is aimed at the amygdala. It's aimed at basic uh, emotion. And, you know, a, uh, a highfalutin message uh, is aimed at people's uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortexes. It's aimed at an area of the brain that processes rational thought, uh, and which is why Democrats generally talk about 42-point plans, and Republicans generally talk about high taxes uh, and, and immigrants. Um, one is designed to stoke emotion. The other is designed to stoke uh, kind of rational processing. He speaks about the need to counter America's current diet of authoritarian messaging with counter messaging that builds support for democratic needs and human rights issues such as immigration. When you're only messaging to people's, to the assumed rational thought that voters have, you're missing their emotions. So you've got to do both. That's why Democrats lose elections. I say this as a former chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. The psychology behind the formation of belief applies directly in Raj's home state of Iowa and the contentious debate surrounding enacting the Iowa Dream Act. That if we were to enact that, then parents would um, bring their kids to the U.S. without documentation because um, they would know that uh, they would essentially get away with it. They would be rewarded for it. That's not the reality. When you're fleeing your home country because of violence, when you're crossing the border with nothing but the clothes on your back, you're not thinking about whether your children are going to get in-state tuition for college. You're thinking about survival. Now, back to Clive. For 14 years, Clive's family lived in New Jersey and flourished. It wasn't until the Trump administration expedited his parents on the path towards deportation. His parents sought sanctuary in the First United Methodist Church of Germantown, New Jersey in August of 2018. So when Trump got to office, immigration policies became more unjust than they were already were. And at that point in time, it seemed like he was sending everyone out of the country, no matter the circumstances. Uh, for my family, it was my parents almost getting deported, even though they were not legal and we were regularly checking in with immigration offices. And this was like a literal change in the immigration system. I mean, like my family's immigration office location changed, the employees changed, the attitude of the officers and the atmosphere of the waiting room was extremely different. Uh, it, it seemed daunting and you could like really feel the tension as you were sitting um, in the waiting room. Um, and did that happen the, quickly or was that a gradual thing? I it happened quickly. It was, I'm not sure because 
my parents had like a state of removal, so they didn't have to check in for a certain period of time. Like they were told to, you know, pack their bags and leave the country. And it was like hostile and an unforgiving attitude. Um, and that's why my parents chose to take up sanctuary in a Philadelphia church to contest the deportation order. How does that work? And what is that? What does that entail? So do they do they live at at the church for for two years? I read. So churches in general, they are, are a safe place. Yeah, they're a safe space. So you can take up sanctuary in the church, um, and you can work towards getting uh, work towards the process of getting like permanent residency or citizenship. That's what my parents did, but they they weren't allowed to leave the church or anything like that. While Clive focused on finishing his associate's degree, neither of Clive's parents could work while in sanctuary. They could no longer help their son pay for college. For a year, I didn't go to college because of circumstances. Clive stayed in his home alone and worked a daily eight-hour shift to finance his family. First I, worked, first, I worked in a tomato factory for about three months. Then I worked in a meatball factory for about a year and a half. And then after that, I moved to Philadelphia and began working in a restaurant. And during this time, I had to put my education to the side um, to help out my family. He transferred to Drexel University for the 2019 school year. He paid for it with loans, scholarship money, and his salary at the South Philly Barbecue Restaurant. His job was lost during the pandemic. He then transferred to Columbia University in New York City. I did eventually finish community college and then later on get accepted to Columbia because I had the support for my family and um, I was overcoming these obstacles with tenacity. We hear from BJ Pendiker, Cornell's former Dean of Students and Presidential Advisor to Diversity, Equity and Inclusion about life in the Ivy League for DACA students. Around 2017, Cornell entered into an amicus brief with a number of other universities around the country, including all of the Ivies, to sign on to say that higher education supports DACA and supports the continuance of DACA. So I think institutions need to be aware that our dreamers are carrying a hidden but very real psychic load while they pursue a college degree that might change not only their life, but their whole family's life. What we know about learning is that non-cognitive factors have a bearing on cognitive performance. So if you're constantly experiencing anxiety about uh, whether a significant portion of, of your safety and security as a person is at stake, it's difficult then to focus on the high-performance tasks of, of moving through courses and pursuing graduation. For Clive, donations have allowed him to move to Columbia's campus last year I haven't really faced any serious challenges other than the financial aspect. Um, Columbia seemingly does well for DACA recipients and I haven't been treated differently based on my status. Um, and they have different avenues to get around financial aid. Clive advocated for his parents in their absence by cooking at fundraisers and speaking in classrooms, churches, and at city hall. Uh, I'm able to speak up and speak out, but I, I don't recommend that for everyone. Before everything happened with my parents, like we didn't speak on, I didn't speak to other students about um, my status as, as a DACA, as DACA or an immigrant in general. Like people never knew until really my family uh, went into sanctuary. Clive has also written a screenplay largely based on his own experience about a family in refuge in a church 
He wants to create more space for undocu black faces on screen. Whatever I bring to the screen won't be me trying to amplify black stories or immigrant stories purposely. I'm simply expressing myself through this art form in a way that may or may not connect to others. Um, my goal is to tell a, a damn good story and that is what I'm going to do. I'm working on one, uh, the feature film um, about sanctuary itself, like everything that my family went through during that time, but it's from the point of view um, of my mother. And I just wanted to portray her story in the general sense of everything. She was a protagonist of this entire thing, was really the one pushing this process forward and like really fighting for my family. Today, under the Biden administration, Clive's parents are no longer taking refuge in the church. My parents got a call and like they were able to, they're like, they're not, they're able to leave the church now. Like they, they're not facing any deportation order or anything like that anymore. Since leaving the church, Clive and his family have been able to move into their own home. I will say that Sanctuary has, you know, brought my family even closer than before. It, it was really like a, a learning process. And, and, and what I've learned more than anything is like, there is more good than there is bad in this world. And it's like to never lose hope. And that's a really beautiful thing because I feel like you really were, obviously you and your family were really pushed to like a limit and to come out of that with such a positive attitude is really admirable. There needs to be a serious focus on immigration policies in this country. There has to be like a, a sit down that leads to a solution. Um, in regards to immigration, uh, it has always been pushed aside for so long. Like when people come together, we'll start to see things shift and change if there's a greater community coming together under this cause. You can support immigrant rights in the Ithaca area by donating to the Tompkins County Immigrants' Rights Coalition. I'm Natalie Breitkopf. This is Shifting and Shaping. See you next week.